This week on The Sport Blokes. This week, we chat to former Victoria Titan, NBL commentator extraordinaire, and GM of the Next Star program, Liam Santamaria, and take a deep dive into the successes of the NBL as an NBA gateway. Oh, believe me, you want to listen to this one, it is a cracker. Let's go. Well, Shui, we're absolutely delighted to have our guest on this week, aren't we? And in doing my research, I've actually found his foray into media began with a podcast and a website. But before we get there, he's a former NBL player who spent some time with the then stacked Victoria Titans teams at the turn of the millennium, where coach Brian Gorgian dubbed him Lim St. Marie <laughs> before moving into the commentary box, where he has not only become one of the best commentators in basketball, but in all of Australian sport in general. After his playing career, he moved into journalism and commentary, and you can hear him regularly commentating for the NBL, as well as talking to the game's movers and shakers on the huddle or seeing him on NBL overtime. Given the great work he's done over the years in becoming an absolute authority on the league and, of course, the face of it too, there's no surprise he was more recently named as the general manager of the Next Stars recruiting program, something we look forward to talking to a lot about today. A very special sport bloke's welcome and thank you to Liam St. Mar- <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to do that. <laughs> to Liam St. <Santa> Marie. <laughs> Hey, good stuff. Thanks. Thanks for the intro and uh and great to be with you fellas. Yep. Lim Lim St. Marie. He he's he's had he's made a career, Gorge, out of winning games and stuffing up people's names. And um he he could never fully wrap his his mouth around mine. So eventually he just started calling me Buffy because apparently there was a singer. Um, like a, I think maybe a Native American singer in the States that he knew growing up called Buffy St. Marie. And so that's where he eventually landed. I actually have a picture of Buffy St. Marie right in front of me, funnily enough. She is Native American, has a very, very large catalogue of songs and, and albums, looks very, very good at what she does. So uh, maybe there's a <laughs> slight, uh, slight compliment in that. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to run with it. There you go. So we covered Bollywood with Casey Frank last week, and now we're covering uh, Native American folk singers with uh, Liam Santa Maria. <laughs> <laughs> now, it was interesting. We heard the, the we're good mates with the Throwback Hoops boys, and we re-listened to the episode you did with them, episode 11. A shout out to those boys. Great, great mm. listen. Really good, insightful stuff. And we look forward to seeing you boys in person in September. Just a little shout out to you. So we won't talk too much about your career. We'd encourage people to go back and listen to that because they did some some really good stuff with you. But one of the things I picked up from that was interesting to hear that Gorgian thought that you might become a head coach one day. Was that something you ever actually entertained? Uh, yeah, it was something that I, that I thought about over the years. Um, I, I never really fully kind of dove into it. And then, you know, as you mentioned earlier, I eventually just started moving into the to the media side of things uh, in my post playing days, and and I guess kind of never really looked back and and um, started to get into coaching. But yeah, I mean, I'd never forget the day he called me into his his office there at Sandringham Stadium where we were training at the time, the Titans, and uh, I'd been training throughout the the off season and preseason with the group, trying to um, you know make something of of my situation and. He said, "Look, look, I want to. I know you want to go to college, but I want to sign you to, to the team. They had there was some injuries at the time in the point guard spot. D Mac, um, I think Nathan Croswell maybe was injured at the, as well, and he felt like he needed an a, maybe what was it a fourth string point guard essentially. We had Mark Dickel on that group as well, and yeah, I just remember him sort of talking me through why he felt like he wanted to sign me and what he saw in me. And one of the things he said was he just, you know, felt like I saw the game in a certain way that, um, you know, made him feel like I would be a really good head coach one day. And 
Um, I do still kind of almost feel like it's maybe a bit of an untapped element for me, maybe regret to some extent that I never really kind of dove into that kind of career. But at the same time, I get my coaching kicks out of uh, coaching my son's domestic team under 10s and working with with th those young kids and and of course you know analyzing the game on a weekly basis as I do on the broadcast and it's so interesting I guess just sort of talking about that Victoria Titans team and obviously with the benefit of hindsight you know it, it might have been a different choice because obviously as many people will know that Titans team folded I think it was that that same season well, at the end of that mm -hmm. season just going into the following you mm. were you were sort of talking before about potentially having college opportunities. Do you like were there any particular colleges you were looking at, and how close were you to actually going? Oh no, I didn't at at that time. But that was why I was practicing with the Titans and working with Gorge. Essentially, um, you know, I'd been coming through the junior ranks at the Melbourne Tigers. I'd trained with the uh, you know Drewy and Copes and Warwick Giddy and that group for for a number of years as as I was coming through the under eighteens and under twenties and. Then I was playing in the Big V and played a final against Sandringham with uh, Croswell and Dickel and Pero Vasiljevic, a bunch of guys that were working with Gorge at the Titans. And and after that game, he he came and and spoke to me and said, "Hey, what 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 are you looking to do? What do you want to do? Do you want to come and work with me a bit?" And um, he was quite good at at that time. He was a kind of an early mover and shaker in terms of helping guys get to college or giving them, you know, uh, pro opportunities in the NBL. And it was a no brainer decision for me. So that's essentially what we were working towards. And then, yeah, then things got, got flipped on its head when he, when he brought me into that office that day. And for the record, I think the decision you made, obviously, as you, you mentioned in that throwback hoops podcast about you've got the option to play for the greatest coach that our league has ever seen, I guess, debatable with Lindsay Gaze, but Gorge is probably up there as, as that number one guy. It, it probably is a no brainer. Now that team, as we, we all know, was ridiculously stacked. I mean, there's some of the, the mm. greatest local players we've ever had in the Chris Anstey's, Tony Ronaldson, the Smith boys, the list goes on. You have arguably what, probably one of the top three imports of all time in Daryl McDonald, Jamal Mosley mm. on that team as well. Have you got any great stories from that season? Because obviously being so stacked, I mean, the, the the training sessions, as you mentioned, would have been insanely tough. And we know that Gorge used to uh, train you hard too. Yeah, really tough sessions. Man, obviously my most enjoyable basketball experience of my life um, because it was the achievement of a dream, playing pro, of course. And, um, and you're right. I mean, it was just on a daily basis, just legends of the game. Left and right, yeah. Tony Ronaldson and Jason Smith and Daryl McDonald. Uh, it was it was an incredible experience for me. And then, of course, you know Brian Gorgian at the helm. So the those practice sessions, and I was really just battling to keep my head above water. I'll be honest, you know, like battling to stay in front of D Mac, battling to kind of um, keep possession of it when he's kind of poking his hands in left and right. So doing my very best in that regard. And I was kind of um, the leader of the scout squad. So essentially, you know, you have your starting group, then you have your reserve group, and then you have the scout group, which was the, you know, one or two other guys that are on the roster. And then a few other guys that are training with the team at the time. And essentially what happens is they go off onto another court. One of the assistant coaches spends some time with them, teaching them the, the sets that are run by the opponent for that week. 
and then you come back into the session and scrimmage against the other groups uh, running Adelaide sets or West Sydney sets or whoever it was going to be that week. And so the ability to come out and pretend to be Brett Maher or pretend to be Derek Rucker or one of those guys throughout the session was super fun. And yeah, I just... I just wish that team hadn't folded because, you know, we were going to re-up with a really great squad and go after it again the following year. I'm glad you mentioned that, Liam, because I wanted to ask about kind of the health of the league. So arguably now the league is probably healthier than it's ever been. We're really in a really great place for the NBL at the moment. But that was almost the calm before the storm, wasn't it, a little bit? As you say, the Titans folded, the Razorbacks folded, Sydney even folded, a number number of teams folded over that period. So mm-hmm. was there much of a sense that that was coming? Or like, did, did the players at the time, I guess it's their livelihood, isn't it? So I guess there mm-hmm. would have been a lot of worried players around that time where when the league was in a little bit of flux. Yeah, it's interesting to look back on it, I guess. Um, you know, at this point down the track, I mean, I, I can remember the meetings. I can remember the meetings with, Gorge with the ownership group, with the the liquidators coming in and explaining to everyone what was going on and what it was going to mean. And, you know, I was just, I mean, I felt like I was in a dream situation, coached by the best coach and with amongst that incredible amount of talent. And I was just kind of hoping that that the club was going to pull through. In the meantime, looking back, I, I recognized that everybody else was getting their ducks in, in line for what where they were going to go. Uh, what they were going to do. And then you would know like Gorge and he took Brad Sheridan with him. Those guys went to Sydney and, you know, he won three championships there in quick succession. And, uh, you know, other guys went in different directions. I think Bear went to Perth maybe that following year. And, you know, I think Jason Smith went to Italy, I think. So guys were getting their situation sorted about what was going to happen next. And, um, you're right. I mean, it was at the back end of the boom of the 90s, and it was the sort of the early part of the downturn for the league. Now, as you mentioned, I mean, that is well and truly in the rearview mirror now with how roaringly successful the league is under, you know, the leadership of Larry Kesselman and Jeremy Lohliger. Um, But you're right. At the time, it was a real sort of sense of uncertainty and um, uh, a, a feeling that, that things were on rocky ground, I guess. Thank God that's far behind us. Hey. Yeah. Well, this and this was this was another thing we were talking to with Casey Frank last week around that era where you know the Wildcats were playing out of Challenge Stadium, the Tigers were out of the Netball and Hockey Stadium, and you had all these these big teams playing in front of really small crowds. And I think there was only three games above six thousand uh, spectators for the entire season. We spoke to Casey about getting a lot of that stuff, and then obviously flipping it around to where we are now, where you've got you know Perth, Sydney, Melbourne all having these stupidly big crowds. Yeah, even like Brisbane last year, yeah, they struggled, but they were still getting at least 80, 85% of their stadium packed out. And so it puts us in this spot now, I guess, where you know, we're looking at expansion. I would be interested to know if you had any thoughts on, I guess, where you feel the best spot would be to expand the league. Oh, man, it's a good question. And you're right about the crowd numbers. I mean, I mean the 18,000, the back-to-back 18,000 in Sydney in the grand final series was was incredible so you combine that with the upturn in the in the broadcast numbers and the like and it's it's really really exciting about just the strength of the league right now but also the trajectory where it's going the growth that's still to come and you're right in terms of expansion obviously southeast melbourne phoenix a couple a few years ago tasmania now a couple of seasons ago and 
I think that, you know, the current movers and shakers at MBL HQ have established a process here um, that's been really successful. And they know the boxes that need to be ticked. They need to have, firstly, they need to have a real thirst for the game. So huge community support um, so that there's going to be a, you know, a really strong fan base. And we know that that exists in the Southeast corridor of Melbourne and We've certainly found out in a big way that it exists in Tasmania. There needs to be a corporate support so that the team can exist in that sort of marketplace in a really healthy way. Um, there needs to be the right infrastructure in terms of the stadium that can be played at and uh, practice facilities and the like. And there needs to be strong government support as well, state government, uh, local government. And so the big question for me is, well, where does all of that exist or where can that all exist if if the if the appropriate work was done because of course that didn't all exist immediately in Tasmania the work needed to be done on the stadium and um you know that's been that's been that was done because of the government support and it's been super successful so i'm not exactly sure where that next best place might be maybe the gold coast is worth having another try at there's certainly been sort of strong conversations in that regard i understand um we've you know there's been a, a look at darwin is my understanding and conversations there or whether newcastle might be able to come back into the league maybe a second team in new zealand i mean i was over there for their home games in the championship series and man like that place was bursting at the seams in terms of um the support for the breakers so i think there's some good options and it's all about which of those options can tick all of those boxes the best. So we understand that, unfortunately, your career was kind of finished by injuries when you were playing in the SEABL. And then you became a primary school teacher, if I'm not mistaken. And you started a fantasy basketball podcast with your roommate, Tommy Greer. So is that kind of how you got into journalism? Was there any more formal training or is that kind of your foot in the door for, for broadcasting and journalism? That was the foot in the door. That was the foot in the door. Um, we started we started the podcast for like eight listeners. We we're in a, t- a league of ten of ten guys playing fantasy hoops, and um, you know we obviously listened to podcasts. And we you know read um, uh, you know all our favorite kind of writers and websites for for basketball, particularly about the NBA. And uh, we just started podcasting on Tommy's couch, essentially in South Yarra, and. Uh, we we had been living together, Tommy and I, for a number of years. We weren't at that point, and and we just fired it up. And after a year or so of that, the fellas were like, you know, you guys like we kind of hang for the podcast each week. You should do it for the people. <laughs> and we're like, well, we're not sure the people would like to know about who won our fantasy matchups. And they're like, no, 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 don't speak on the real stuff. So we expanded it. Um, we started the we started the website downtown. I started writing for that. And um, we we expanded the podcast. We brought on Brett Thomas, who was working at SCN at the time. So all of a sudden, we were recording out of the SCN studios, and he was producing it. And um, the quality, the audio quality, went up a level. And um, you know, we, we were able to bring in the kind of guests that we wanted to get into. And then things grew from there. All of us, Brett Thomas was commentating the NBL games for SCN um, in Melbourne, and uh, he first got Tommy involved while he was injured. And, stepped in and helped him out as a special comments guy. And then he uh, got me into that space and um, yeah, I really enjoyed it and kind of haven't looked back from that moment. So there you go. No formal training is a natural. 
and that, that's always that. That, oh that, you are <laughs> but, that, but that's that's always been the feel from I think from us and certainly from a lot of other people that that listen to the NBL commentary is that you you can really tell that I mean obviously you know what you're talking about which helps but you do you just seem to have that real natural speaking ability which is obviously very very useful. I wanted to kind of know on the flip side, you know, what are the challenges getting into that? Is it just the, you know, trying to come up with a catchphrase? Obviously you've got people like John Casey, for example, who has a plethora of uh, amazing catchphrases he used over the the nineties and two thousands. So like, what are the challenges of doing that in real time? Um, Certainly not, not a catchphrase focus, certainly from my perspective, maybe if you, if you're going to get into that play by play type of zone, but as an analyst, um, for me, it was just about reading the game, you know, and I've just, I was, I've been a point guard my whole life. My dad was my coach to my mom and dad were my coaches early on. I was the son of sort of uh, basketball passionate people. And I had, a, I had amazing coaches coming through the ranks. So like my first coaches after them, my first coach was Ken Watson, who you may or may not have heard of, but he's kind of known as the grandfather of basketball in Australia. He, he sort of coached Lindsay Gays when he was a young man. So I had Ken Watson in under 12s. I had his son, Ray Watson, in under 14s. I had Des Middleton in under 18s who introduced Chris Anstey to the game. And I had Al Westover as my under 20s coach. So I had this incredible coaching along the way as a junior, always a point guard, always looking to um, see the game from the perspective of the coach, myself on the floor, but also every one of my teammates out there at both ends. And um, so I've always kind of sort of assessed the game in that kind of way, even when I was playing. And um, then when I started to get into the broadcasting game, there were a couple of guys from the States in particular that I, I really enjoyed watching games that they were calling. And so in my mind, I thought, you know what, that's the sort of type of broadcaster and analyst I want to be. Guys like Steve Kerr, at the time, before he had, you know, he moved into the coaching ranks. He'd moved out of the front office at Phoenix. He'd been commentating on TNT, and before he went into the Warriors, I used to love watching games that he was calling, and and also Jeff Van Gundy as well. Tommy and I used to sit and watch games, and we used to <laughs> we used to actually chat to each other about the game that we were watching, and we'd give ourselves points. If Jeff Van Gundy said something we'd said, uh, you know, <laughs> after the fact, oh, um, I think you got half a point if Mark Jackson said it and you got a full <laughs> solid point if Jeff Van Gundy echoed your comments. So those kind of guys, I wanted to bring a sort of an, an analytical style to broadcasting the game. And then I guess over the course of experience, I've kind of found my own voice. Given that Mark Jackson couldn't find uh, a top five ballot spot for Nikola Jokic on his MVP, <laughs> I think half a point is maybe even generous. <laughs> it's such an interesting point there, you mate, Liam. Like, if you think about so many of the commentators, that's something I hadn't actually really considered. So many of the guys that are in there were point guards. And if you look at, like, Homicide was was a point guard in the league. Uh, like, Damien Martin doing yeah, a lot of Damo, the Yeah, Damo. Larry. Yeah, Brad Rosen was one. In the NBA mm-hmm. as well, you talk about Mark Jackson, Jeff Van Gundy was a point guard in his. So yeah, it's it's interesting that you bring that up. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess you know the the, the point guard position's kind of changing over the course of time. But but back in the day, your primary job was to organize the team, run the team, and be extension of the coach on the floor. So you know that that kind of role lent itself to viewing the game as a player 
in a way that was a real holistic sort of approach. You know, Tommy and I used to joke, he said, listen, you're the point guard. You think about it. I'm the small forward. It's my job to run and jump. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I said, all right, mate, leave the thing into me and we'll sort of sort it out from there. And of course, he kind of undersells himself. He's been a terrific player and analyst and he's an outstanding CEO for the Phoenix right now. But um, you're right. I think, you know, like you look at a lot of the coaches in the AFL world and they weren't necessarily the best coaches, weren't always necessarily the best players. But they were they were guys that um, you know needed to kind of really see the game from a whole team perspective, and you know I feel like that does often, not always. You know, there's other guys that have played different positions that have been awesome broadcasters, but you know I certainly feel like that experience for me over the course of my basketball life has helped me in a big way with what I do now. And Stewie and I always said, even before we did the podcast, we've been doing it for a few years now, but we always said, we're always so impressed with how well you could explain things and and maybe explain like plays or your analysis at halftime, all that sort of stuff. And I actually wonder if doing an education degree maybe even mm-hmm. helped subconsciously explaining things in, in the basketball world as well. Given we've started with early career and your foray into journalism, now seems like the best time to ask our mailbag question. Now, this one's from Jackson McDonald, a name you may be familiar with, and a shout out to he and the NBL Newsboys, who also run a great podcast. Jackson asks, what is the biggest spray you've ever received as either a member of the media or player, and I'll add, or both? (laughs) Oh, man. That is a good question. Um, All right. Let me me give you a couple of examples. First one that pops into my, my mind was not as a, a player or a member of the media. It was as a fan. Oh. When I was, how old would I have been? Maybe 12 or 13. And uh, the family was on a trip in the States. We're at a Golden State, New Jersey game. So picture kind of Tom Gugliotta. Yep. Um, he was getting buckets, Latrell Sprewell. Uh, and playing for New Jersey was one half of Thump and Bump, Rick Mahorn. Rick Mahorn, yeah, I was going to say uh, and, yeah. <laughs> and as he was walking off the floor from the pregame shoot-around, um, I kind of put my program and a pen out in front of him, kind of like as the signal to like, hey, I would really love an autograph. And he turned and looked at me and kind of roared at me and said, hey, you got to ask me for it first. And as a tiny little guy <laughs> who had watched... He and Charles Barkley um, as thump and bump at the 76ers and like this enormous kind of guy in front, like that, that how I felt in that moment has now, I'll never forget. So that's one. Well, just, um, just quickly, Liam, as well, he was obviously one of the initial bad boys and, you yes, know, sir. probably, probably one of the toughest. I still remember there mm-hmm. was, I think it was just after the expansion draft and he got into something with Isaiah Thomas and Isaiah basically threw a fist at him and he, he didn't even flinch, didn't even blink an eyelid. Ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Super tough unit. And he scared the crap out of me that day. <laughs> um, <laughs> as a player, I'm going to give a shout out to Chicago Bulls assistant coach, Damian Cotter, yeah. who, who coached me in the, uh, in the SEABL in the, uh, uh, for the Knox Raiders. And man, it was early in his coaching career. He was uh, a fiery character at the time. He's kind of mellowed over the journey. And man, he's been super successful across the course of his career. But man, he, I, I mean, I can't remember too many specifics, but some bags were booted, some whiteboards were kind of ripped off and 
pushed around like he would have a spray or two in those Knox Raider uh, locker rooms from time to time. School of hard knocks, as it were. Uh... Sorry, that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> now, we appreciate you've stepped into the role recently. So it's something that's fairly new on your plate, but you can still give a better background than we can. We're wondering if you could perhaps give our listeners a brief history of the Next Stars program and perhaps how it's evolved over the years. Yeah, sure. Um, well, essentially, I mean, as a lot of people would know, it's it's set up as a um, to provide an alternative pathway for guys that are on their way to the NBA draft. So young Australian players like Josh Giddy, young American players like LaMelo Ball or RJ Hampton or, or other players in that similar type of position from around the world, um, like we've seen in the last couple of years um, with guys like Usman Jiang, um, Rayan Rupert this year is a projected first round pick. So the idea is to come into the NBL, play a year, maybe two, um, and use that as an opportunity to grow your game, have an unbelievable life experience, elevate your draft stock and get yourself ready for um, a long and hopefully successful NBA career. So that's what the program essentially is is set up to do. It it began, I think, as a seed of an idea following the experience of, of Terrence Ferguson in the league in the 2016-17 season for the Adelaide 36ers. So shout out Joey Wright because, you know, he had the foresight to say, you know what, this is, this is exciting. I'm going to use an import spot on this guy coming out of high school who's looking to go pro and um, is a projected first round pick. And, um, you know, I think this could be great for our league and for our club. And I think he's going to help us win games as well. And you might remember they were uh, they were the regular season champs, got knocked out in the semifinals by the Hawks, Rodney Clark and the, and the like. But they were genuine championship contenders. And, you know, Ferguson played an important role on that team. The preseason tournament, the Blitz that year, 2016, was in uh, Brisbane. And it was swarming with NBA scouts. NBA scouts, NBA front office executives, GMs, assistant GMs. And it was, you know, it was a real exciting buzz. And, you know, the flow on effect from that was that Tory Craig got opportunities um, from guys coming to the league and watching Terrence Ferguson and the exposure of the league over into the States, you know, really grew that year. So then that was essentially the kind of inspiration for the idea of uh, the Next Stars program. I know. Uh, agent Daniel Moldovan um, from Octagon was important in this process. And he had conversations with Larry Kesselman and Jeremy Lowliger. And um, from that was born the idea of the league having an involvement in setting up this program. So, you know, the NBA will add an extra roster spot. Teams can utilize the program to have an extra player. The league will pay the salary and, um, you know, we'll, we'll kind of go from there. So, um, that first year, Brian Bowen came into the Next Stars program, played for Andrew Gaze and the Sydney Kings, went on to be a two-way guy for the Indiana Pacers. And then the following year, of course, it just exploded with the arrival of LaMelo Ball and, and RJ Hampton. And LaMelo firing from a projected second-round pick to becoming the third pick of the draft just caused massive you know, waves across global basketball and you know, really forced the NBA to ha- have to pivot you know, all of a sudden they had to, they created the the G League Ignite. Other sort of programs like Overtime Elite started sprouting up to explore this type of element of the of the industry. 
And, um, you know, the, the Nexstars program has kind of pivoted a little bit here and there in terms of uh, bringing in, focusing on some European guys. Josh Giddy was a super successful Nexstar um, throughout his time here as well. So that's, I guess, the history of the kind of guys that have come through the program. And now I'm involved working hand in hand with, with the commissioner, Jeremy Lowliger, on um, recruiting, uh, liaising with our clubs and essentially um, kind of driving the program forward. So you've given us, uh, I guess, a couple of really good following questions from that. So obviously for yourself as the GM of the Next Stars program, you know, what does your day-to-day role look like in terms of the recruitment and, and what it's all about? And I guess the other thing is, you know, how do you source and decide which players come across to the NBL from what parts? Obviously we've seen North and South America. We've seen, you know, European players. We've seen obviously the Australian ones. When are we getting into Africa? When are we getting into different parts of Asia? That sort of thing. Mm. Well, it's a good, really good question. And I guess there's a lot to it. Um, on a daily basis, one thing that really dictates a lot of what I do are the various time zones that um, I'm working with. Because um, when you're kind of communicating regularly with players and agents and scouts, um, in various different parts of the world, you, you're dealing with multiple different time zones. So when I wake up, there's a few hours. There's there's a a small amount of time before um, they go to sleep in Europe. So a, a small window of opportunity to communicate with people there. And then there's a, a number of hours in our AM where before that happens with people in the States, Got to focus in on people on the East Coast first before that starts getting too late there. And you get a little bit of time, extra time up your sleeve with people on the West Coast. And then there's a little bit of time in the middle of of, of our day where um, they're all asleep in the States and in Europe. And, you know, I can zero in on watching tape and, and liaising with our, uh, you know, key decision makers at our clubs. And then when it hits about sort of four, five, six o'clock in the afternoon, um, the, it starts to become morning in Europe. So agents that we might be uh, in communication with in various parts around Europe, in France or in Spain or in um, based in London, um, we can you know fire up those conversations as well. So it's um, a lot of a lot of WhatsApp, a lot of messages that you know you leave that are ready for someone when they wake up or they've left for me. I roll over in the morning and my phone's kind of loaded up with WhatsApp messages from people from, from uh, Europe and in the States. And, um, you know, it's about picking up those conversations and kind of, you know, diving into the talent and um, going through the process. And, you know, one thing that would, I think would be interesting for people to know is that we, you know, over the, over the course of the off season, as we sort of land on who are going to be the next stars, this has been my first off season within the role. Um, <laughs> we are involved in this kind of process with a lot of players that you will you know never really see the light of day in terms of the next stars conversation. Um, maybe it comes down to us and a different option and it goes a different way. And um, so, you know, we, we, right now we have three next stars that are out there in the public domain for this upcoming season, Ariel Hook Porty and AJ Johnson, Alexander Saar, um, we're in ongoing conversations with other guys from around the world right now. And, um, there's been a lot of, of going through that process with a lot of, you know, elite prospects, um, along that journey as well, that, um, won't become next stars, won't at least not for this season. 
um, but you know we've got we've established really strong relationships with, and we've kind of been through that recruiting process with in a big way. Thanks for that really interesting summary, Liam. It's funny you were talking about Terence Ferguson because in my memory he was the first next star, but actually, as you say, he kind of almost helped inspire the program. So that was really interesting mm. to hear. There's been some news overnight from on3.com that a five-star prospect, Ron Holland, has withdrawn his commitment to Texas and is now looking at not only Arkansas, but hopefully the NBL Next Stars program. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, uh, you know, he's, man, he's a high-level talent, Ron Holland. And, you know, he's a, he's a guy we'd love to have in the Next Stars program. We've, we've flagged our interest. You know, we've, we've certainly put ourselves in that conversation He's a guy that has a really, really bright future, a projected top 10 pick next year. Um, you know, there are some recruiting websites, 247 Sports is one that have him as their number one player for the class of 2023. And you're right, he reopened his recruitment. Texas have given him his release from his commitment next year. And we're in the mix. You would have seen in that report, he's taken a visit to G League Ignite. You know, some big schools, Arkansas was one that he closely considered uh, when he previously ended up committing to Texas. But, you know, we've certainly spoken with his representatives and, you know, flagged our interest and, um, you know, like uh, really fascinated to see how his decision-making process plays out from here. You know, fingers crossed he looks uh, an amazing prospect and he would be a, a really, really big tick to our league if we can get him across and shine a further light on what we're doing over here. And it's it seemed inconceivable not so long ago, but it, legitimately we could have a situation where we have three NBL next stars drafted in the first round, if not the lottery, because he might be, even be a top five or top ten pick. Well, I mean, we've got Lamelo at three, Giddy at... Well, I mean in one six, year, though. Oh, you mean in one year. Yes, so with Sar and Huck Cordy and, and Rupert. Well, Rupert will be this time. But yeah, wow, that's tantalizing, isn't it, Liam? It is. A lot of water to go under the bridge. But, you know, you've got to be in these kind of conversations to, to have a chance. And, um, you know, it's a credit to the growth of the league. And to those previous next stars that have come through over the years, Lamelo Ball and Josh Giddy, those guys that you were talking about, that you know that as a result, the next stars program is is well and truly in these types of conversations. So yeah, we wait with bated breath to hear what what Holland and and his people um, decide that they're going to do moving forward. Amazing. We understand that the next stars sit outside of the NBL salary cap. I was wondering if you could explain how this kind of differs to marquee players and and how this kind of all works in the makeup of of each team. Yeah, sure. So obviously the marquee player rule is is an interesting one. It's been a really great initiative actually from the NBL in terms of you guys would remember how how many of our top players, our, Aussie, our top Aussie players, if they weren't in the NBA, they were in Europe. And it was, I think it was one of the big reasons why the league kind of um, dipped away a little bit was was the the likes of those Dave Andersons and Daniel Kickett and Brad Newleys that were playing their careers um, in Europe, um, because, you know, the, the salary cap system here made it tough for teams to be able to, you know, come to the table, to the level that was required for elite talent like that. So, um, sure. We've, we've still got some guys overseas right now, but, um, the, I think that the marquee player rule has been unbelievable in that regard in the ability to, you know, have guys like Andrew Bogut and Matthew Delvadova and, um, you know, there's some of the other elite, keep Chris Golding in the league for over this period of time and, um, you know, have have those key players in the competition. And so the way that works is you can, when you um, uh, categorize one of your players as a marquee player, you 
pay only a small percentage of their salary, it counts against your cap. And of course, you know, the cap situation, the way it's set up in the NBL, it's a soft cap. If you go over it, you pay what is essentially a luxury tax. So any way in which you can find to save money through that process, um, you know, is a is a huge factor to A, having a kind of financially viable and successful franchise, but B, being able to put together a really talented and competitive squad. Um, and the marquee player rule is a is a key kind of lever to pull in that regard. So your marquee player doesn't completely sit against the uh, outside of the cap, but there's only a small percentage of their salary or amount goes into the cap. Um, you can have a second marquee player if you want. Uh, you can have a third marquee player if you want. Uh, each time you add another player as a marquee, it's a, it's a higher number that counts. So your second marquee player, it's a higher number that counts against the cap. Again, it jumps up for your third one. But the way the rule exists, you can have only a, you can have a, a total of four imports and marquees combined. Um, so you can go with one import if you like, say like Melbourne United did a few years ago with Scotty Hobson, and you can have three marquee players like they had with Jock Landau, Chris Golding, and and Mitch McCarron at the time um, resulted in a championship uh, in Brisbane right now. They've usually only got two imports because um, right now they've got Aaron Baines and Nathan Sobey in marquee player spots. So that's the way in which that rule works. And from a next stars perspective, the salary of the player sits completely outside of the cap. None of it counts to your salary cap calculations. Uh, which is why, you know, a guy like, for instance, John Casey last season was saying, you know, he doesn't understand why all the teams aren't at the next stars table bringing in talent to add to their roster because it's an extra roster spot and their entire salary sits outside the cap. Now, there are some expenses. Of course, the club needs to pay for accommodation and, um, you know, a car and, you know, some expenses on the ground. That's another player that you're traveling and paying for in terms of when you go on the road and the like. But, you know, it is a really cool way in which teams um, can explore the opportunity to bring in bring in talent into their team. And, you know, I think certainly the New Zealand Breakers have, have shown a, a shining example of how to do that successfully over the last couple of years. And I'm finding right now, I mean, I've, I've got all 10 teams in the league either have a next star or are at the next star's table exploring that as a as a possibility for this upcoming season. It's almost like you've read our questions, mate, because you touched on several things that we had on our run. So I guess for starters, what is it about New Zealand and Australia that is so attractive to French players? And, and kind of backing on the comment that Case made, is the end goal the hope to have a next star on each and every team every season, or is that not realistic? Um, I think it's it's on a case-by-case case basis. I mean, if it's the right type of, of talent and prospect um, in, in the right situation, um, great, let's go. And if that means that, you know, we have uh, three or four or five or six or ten, terrific. Um, if... We always say, like, well, we're not interested in trying to kind of fit a square peg into a round hole. So we're not, you know, we're not like looking for a certain number uh, if it means it's not a, it's not the right fit. It's not a good situation. The player may not be the right fit for the league or for that team. The team might not be the right fit for that player. And so, you know, in that case, it's, it's better to have nine rather than 10, if that makes sense. 
In terms of kind of French players in particular, I mean, it's been really successful, hasn't it, these last couple of years with with Ousmane Jiang and uh, Rayan Rupert, Alexander Saar uh, this upcoming season. Uh, Hugo Besson wasn't a, a next star, but he kind of may as well have been. And and he he was drafted out, out of his season in the NBL as well. Um, I think there's a couple of things in play there. I mean, it's been – it's an attractive pathway for uh, – well, we've found for, you know, certainly it's been a proven pathway for American prospects, Aussie prospects like Josh Giddy, But, yeah, it has been particularly kind of attractive for Europeans as well because um, the European game that the pro level, I mean, it's tough. It's it's really competitive. It's it's hard to, to find opportunities to play at really high levels as a young talent. Um, and it's also... It's also kind of slow. Um, the pace of play in in Europe is is much slower than what it is here, and um, it's certainly a, a a whole lot slower than what it is in the NBA system, in the NBA, and in the G League. And what we find the NBL is is a really cool hybrid between the FIBA game and the you know the international game, where the the court's a little smaller. There's no defensive three seconds, and maybe the defense is played on a nightly basis at a bit of a higher level, and um, the pace and free flowing style that you might find in the states that you experience coming through high school, or you might find it the, in the NBA and and in the G League. So it's a cool kind of hybrid in that regard. So players that are looking to kind of spread their wings a little bit from the bump and grind of the European game. Um, play some more possessions, play in a little bit of an open sort of floor, play a little bit of a faster style, look at the NBL and say, hey, this could be a really good opportunity for me. And, and then the other thing that happens is, you know, guys talk to each other. Um, you know, Usman Jiang played with Rayan Rupert on junior national teams. Uh, Rayan Rupert played with Alexander Saar in the under-17 World Cup last year so you know these guys talk they message each other hey what was your experience like in the nbl and um as a result of the, of them having terrific experiences and it being great for their game and their careers and you know other guys are keen to jump on board and it's interesting you mentioned the under 17s world cup there were a couple of guys i kind of wanted to get your thoughts on and then potentially some other guys that you might be looking at that, that we maybe haven't heard of so firstly obviously rocco zakarski who I mean, seven foot one, he's not even 17 yet. The the highlights from that World Cup were incredible to watch. I don't know about you. I kind of felt like there was a little bit of a K-Soto sort of feel to the way that he played and the way that he moves. Um, the other guy was Dash Daniels. So Dyson Daniels' brother, 6'3", he's only 15, I believe. Amazing pedigree, obviously, with his brothers. His dad was a collegiate baller, Ricky. Like, what have you seen from those two guys? And are there maybe other sort of players that you would look at? And I might also piggyback off that. How young do you start looking at players? Well, certainly locally, we have the ability to kind of um, start tracking these guys from a really early age, right? Um, and certainly that's been the process here with Rocco now over a period of time. And, you know, certainly the case here with Dash as well. I mean, I, <clears throat> I've... I was watching those guys just recently up in in Brisbane at the under eighteen national championships. Rocco with Queensland South and and Dash on a Victorian country team that went all the way to the the championship game. And um, you know both those guys are you know really exciting talents um, and have big futures in the game. Um, and I've you know I've certainly made no 
um, secret of the fact that I think Rocco Zakarski has a massive future, has a bright future in the NBA, and and that I think that the NBL Next Stars program it would be fantastic for him. And you know, we've we've had ongoing conversations with with Rocco and his family about what that would look like, and you know, I think um, you know it would be a, a really great move for him to come and start to really kind of challenge himself. He's had some really terrific development at the. Uh, at the NBA Global Academy and the Center of Excellence there in Canberra under the, the tutelage of, of Marty Clark and Robbie McKinlay. There's got they do outstanding work there. And, you know, I, I do feel like there's going to come a time here where it would really benefit Rocco to step into an NBL program and, and go up against, you know, big, strong guys on a daily basis and start to grow his game towards the NBA draft in that regard. And, you know, certainly Dash Daniels, um, is an exciting prospect as, as well. You know, we've, we've we've seen the success of Dyson and what the kind of player that he's grown into. And Dash is a, is a bit of a slightly different type of player, but you know has that same really impressive feel for the game as well. And you know, it was really fun to watch him step up in big moments as well in some of those games as a bottom age player. Not just a bottom age guy, but with a December birth date. So, you know, what way younger than some of the guys he was going up against at, uh, in Brisbane a, a couple of months ago. And, you know, you know, really, I thought him impressed at, at certain times. And, um, you know, his brother took a different route. He went the G League Ignite um, pathway and uh, that worked for him. I'm not sure what type of sort of overall experience he had, but he ended up being a, a top 10 pick. And, um, you know, I think it's going to be, it's going to be really um, interesting to see which way Dash goes with with his decision-making as well. I think, you know, we've seen from guys like Josh Josh Giddy from an Australian perspective, but, you know, others, uh, Americans and, and Europeans, a bunch of guys that have come in and had a really successful time taking the Next Stars pathway as well. And, you know, I look forward to having those conversations with, with Dash and his parents over the over the next couple of years about what that might look like. You can hear the next bit of the interview in a few weeks' time in our special NBA draft episode, where we'll have a few different perspectives from a number of different people we've interviewed over the last little while. Let's skip ahead. You mentioned injury kind of affecting Rupert's season. Unfortunately, it derailed Ariel Huckporty's season completely, and I was a massive fan of his, and I actually thought mm. he could have gone towards the bottom of the lottery, I think, uh, there was Jalen Duran, there was Mark Williams. There were a couple of centres selected around that time, and I actually think he has the potential to be as good as them. I'd be interested to see mm. if you agree with that. Man, did you see him in the Blitz last season before he went down? Beast mode. Oh. Beast mode. Like, he was just a monster out there. Um, so excited for what he was going to do last season before he got hurt. Uh, just blocking shots off the backboard down one end and then – uh, I've never seen anyone quicker from rim to rim. Now, Jock Landau was super quick. There's been some bigs across the journey in the NBL that have been great at running that middle cylinder, but I've never seen any quicker from a from a big man perspective than Ariel Hukporty rim to rim. And he showed that and he was, you know, as I said, blocking shots down one end and throwing down monstrous dunks down the other. And then, bam, snapped his Achilles. It was a really uh, horrible thing to happen. Um, and I'm pumped for the comeback. You know, we saw how successful it was at Melbourne United with Jack White working with their high-performance team, coming back from the Achilles surgery, and now, you know, he's 
He's in the NBA doing terrific things. And he came back. They were telling me as he was coming back, Liam, like, Jack's come along so well. When he steps back out on the floor, he's going to be quicker, stronger, and more athletic. And I said, no, 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 I've done an Achilles. I'll snap my Achilles. That doesn't that doesn't happen like that. And amazingly, that that is how it played out with Jack White. So I can't wait to see um, the comeback season from Ariel Hook-Porty. It's going to be interesting. He's going to be sharing that front court with Joe Lawal-Lachul again, like he was in his first season at Melbourne United. And that wasn't going to be the case last season. He had a runway to you know an enormous role. How does Dean Vickerman manage that? From a minutes perspective and a role perspective, we saw late in that first season, Ariel was playing so well that he was starting to play both of those guys together because he just didn't want to take Ariel Hookporty off the court. So, yeah, they, they've got a real talent coming back into the lineup this season. And, you know, I, can't, I think maybe some people have forgotten what type of an NBA prospect Ariel can be. And I, I can't wait to see him remind everyone this season. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that you had the same thing with the Achilles. I, I do remember that. and It will be very interesting to see if he has that same sort of rehab success that that Jack White did. And, you know, we've seen the sort of stuff he's been doing in the G League. He's been tearing it up over there. So mm. hopefully uh, Ariel can have a similar sort of uh, recovery and a similar sort of resurgence, I guess, as he comes in. Did want to just get a little bit of a thoughts. Obviously, you, we've spoken about Alexander Saar um, coming into Perth, AJ Johnson as well uh, as the other guy. What are your thoughts on those two guys and what have you seen? What can you tell the, the, the listeners about that? Well, really exciting young talents. Uh, both projected top 20 picks right now in, in ESPN's kind of first and still current 2024 NBA mock draft. Um, two guys that have come from sort of very different experiences and pathways. Um, AJ's had an interesting journey, man. I mean, he was um, he was actually at the Donder Academy, Kanye West's. Um, uh, sort of uh, set up that, that oh. he had. And then <laughs> midway through last season, you know, that was a really talented group. They had Rob Dillingham on that squad and, um, you know, a bunch of kids there that were really talented. And of course, you would be aware that they all kind of needed to move on from that, you know, maybe six or seven, eight months ago. Um, he went from there to SoCal Academy, Southern California Academy, and, you know, was a guy that really kind of really kind of blew up this time last year, coming into his senior year of high school, playing that EYBL sort of um, summer circuit, really played well at Peach Jam in North Augusta this time last year and, um, you know, flew up the rankings um, and, you know, started to become a kind of a five-star type of guy. And he's a prototypical, you know, he's the tools of a prototypical kind of modern NBA guard, 6'6", long, athletic, great handle, really shifty, um, has a really good stroke, good athleticism. Um, now he's got to get stronger. No doubt about that. He's got to, he's got to put on some, some, some muscles going to work, have to work really hard in the gym there and in Wollongong over the course of this next season. And, um, you know, it's going to be a transition for him moving into the, to the pro level. But one thing I think that's really exciting about AJ is he's got a pro game. You know, and I think it was a really kind of savvy decision by he and his people to come to the NBL rather than the college route. Now, he was initially headed that way, he committed to Texas. They had a coaching change and he decided to flip that script. Um, but, you know, he has a pro game. He's going to really kind of, I think, enjoy playing in the kind of high-paced tempo that is played in the NBL and that Jacob Jacomas is going to play with that squad this season. 
And I think he's going to really benefit as well from from learning uh, from the import backcourt that they've got there in Illawarra. Uh, Tyler Harvey and Justin Robinson, I think, are going to be really terrific mentors for him. So, um, you know, really excited to see him out there on the floor. And Alexander's had a bit of a different pathway. He's obviously come from France and um, he was at Real Madrid in their kind of junior um, program there. And he's a guy that, you know, took the leap over to join Overtime Elite, um, has been playing there for the last couple of seasons. And, you know, you talk about AJ as a prototypical modern guard. Well, Alexander is that in terms of a big, uh, you know, seven foot, but really moves well, like up and down the floor, um, quick, uh, athletic, long, um, and, you know, has a versatile skill set. He has a, he has a stroke. He can pick and pop or he can space out to the corner and catch and shoot and knock that down. He's a lob threat, of course, with his athleticism, um, out of pick and rolls. Um, but, I think where he's going to really excel is at the defensive end. And, you know, obviously there's the highlights that you would have seen of him coming across as a weak side defender and sending shots packing. But I think what's going to be really cool about him is he's got a really quick feet and an ability to move laterally that a lot of bigs don't have. So you did you, you know, picture Derek Pardon last year and the way he would jump out on ball screens for New Zealand and hard show, stop the ball, then put you know high hands, recover to his man. What kind of impact that had for New Zealand's defense? Um, he has he's going to have the ability to learn how to do that. And late in shot clocks, when his man comes up as the screener, he's going to be able to switch on the guards, slide his feet, and contest. Um, now, obviously, I'm just using this as a kind of a, a a comparison because people would have seen this play. But if you recall the way Anthony Davis did that to Steph Curry late in that game um, and a week or so ago, um, big play. The Lakers hadn't been switching those actions all series, and then in that big moment, you know, Davis switches, slides his feet, and Curry couldn't get a good look off. And then high hand contest made it a really tough shot. I think Alexander Saar has the ability to do that at a high level as well. So excited to see him play for John Rilly and and uh, and in the, that program out west this season. And as Wildcats fans, we're certainly hoping he rebounds like Anthony Davis as well. Yes, that lob threat is is tantalizing too with Bryce Cotton in the pick and roll. That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, we haven't had a lob threat for a very, very long time. Yeah, yes, so. David Van Dyke. Uh, um, <laughs> More recently than that. Um, <laughs> probably might be the most recent, I guess. But... Well, now you've got two of them. Because Keanu Pinder is going to be in that role as well. It's going to be fun to watch that squad this season. Now, one of the things that we did kind of briefly touch on was the NBL-NBA crossover, which obviously as fans of the NBL and the NBA, we think has been an amazing success. One of the things you alluded to on that Throwbacks episode was that there's the potential that one of these days one of the NBL teams would win, and then not long Mm. after that, obviously, that that infamous uh, Adelaide-Phoenix game, which was just phenomenal. You're a Phoenix Suns fan, is that right? Mm-hmm. So obviously you've got a bit of a conflict there. You know, you're wanting the NBL to do well, but maybe not against your team. That, that's, I guess, another another question. We've obviously seen a lot of these non-next star players sort of go over to the States in that capacity and do really well. You know, Jock Landau, Jack White, uh, Xavier Cooks has done really well, made it across to the NBA. Mm-hmm. This is kind of almost another type of feeder, don't, don't you think? 
those preseason games? Yeah, the crossover games gives us a chance for NBA teams to kind of see a little bit more of the NBL players. A hundred percent. Yeah. And um and not just in the capacity of kind of like um you know, guys performing well in those games and as a result winning um opportunities and summer league opportunities or, you know, NBA contracts, but just the regard for the league that has grown as a result of um, our participation and competitiveness in those games. Now, sure, there's been some blowouts. Heck, I was there for the mistake in Salt Lake when the Wildcats got wiped off the floor by, by the Jazz. But, you know, there's been so many other games that were, you know, obviously the Oklahoma City, Melbourne United game that was one point, but a bunch of other games that were single-digit margins. Um, single digit margins in the fourth quarter and maybe ended up as as 15 or 20 point losses but man the New Zealand Breakers against the Phoenix Suns a few years earlier was a, I think it was an 8 point result the Wildcats played the Nuggets really yeah, yeah. tough yep. following that game Cotton had 33 and they took them down the wire and I can remember um this the the Kings playing the Clippers in Hawaii and that being a single digit game with only 5 or 6 minutes to go with Bogut and Jerome Randall and those guys out there on the floor. And then of course, what Adelaide were able to do last season. I mean, people notice, people notice and they say, man, that is a tough league. It's a good league, high level players, really well coached. It's why they want to play our teams in preseason. And it's why they want to recruit our players across uh, either draft them or, or sign them as free agents in the case of guys like Landale and, and Xavier Cooks and the like. So I think, you know, you add in the next stars program and, the style of play that we have here and, you know, then the the initiative of playing those NBL, NBA preseason games, it all adds up to, um, I think, a, you know, a really exciting element of the league. And that is that it, it has become a proven pathway to get to the bright lights of the association. And, you know, some people say, well, we shouldn't be trying to, trying to develop our guys just to be sent to the NBA. We should be trying to keep our guys here. The reality is you can't hide from the fact that that's the best league. That's the biggest money. And it's where as, as a baller, you should be trying to play. So I think kind of um, sort of structuring our league and positioning our league is a great place for you to play, to develop your career, to be the best it possibly can be, I think is, is a smart play and has been really successful. I think you're absolutely right. We should embrace that. And we're now at a situation where we can nearly field an entire national team purely of NBA players. So I think that's a really uh, a good way to approach things. Thanks so much, Liam. You've been super generous with your time. We'll we'll wrap with the question that we like to ask all of our guests when we get them on. And this time we actually gave you a bit of warning, unlike with your good mate Halls, who I forgot to tip off to this one. And so when we asked this question, he was like, oh, I wish you'd, you wish you'd given me some notice on this one, boys, because it's a good question. So what we like to ask everyone is their favourite live sporting moment that they've ever experienced. Now, it could be as a player, could be as a teammate, could be as a commentator, could be as a kid. You gave that great Rick Mahorn story. Uh, yeah, so we'll just throw it out to you. Could be other sports too. We know you're a big Essendon Bombers fan, for example. So, yeah, we'd love to know your favourite live sporting moments, Liam. All right. Okay, cool. Now, because you gave me a little uh, time to think about it, I've got a couple of honourable mentions. Nice. Beautiful. So none of them are as a player. First one's as a, as a little kid. Um, watching the Boomers play uh, the Soviet Union at the Glass House here in Melbourne, uh, Andrew Gaze and and you know old timers will will remember this game, man. He hit an amazing three late in that game that just blew the roof off the joint. 
And as a tiny little guy, I think I might've been seven at the time, um, was a real formative experience for me, Mike. I just spent the next few years in the backyard pretending to be Andrew Gaze against Alexander Volkov and Sharonis Marshallonis and these kind of guys. So that was an awesome experience for me. Fast forward from there to, to um, the year 2000, where um, one of where one of my best mates from school, his older sister won a gold medal at the at the Sydney Olympics in Taekwondo, Lauren Burns. And um, I was there that day watching all her fights and um, you know, watching someone achieve that I'd known growing up um as you know my my mate Mike's older sister um achieve her dream of winning that Olympic gold medal was an awesome experience. Um and then the other honorable mention is what we're talking about before, being there last year to see an NBL team beat an NBA team for the very first time. You know, a lot of people said it would never happen and they did it in emphatic fashion, the 36ers. But my number one favorite live sporting experience of all time was being one of the 52,000 that were at Marvel Stadium when Patty Mills went berserk and the Boomers beat Team USA. Uh, in that exhibition game in the lead up to the 2019 World Cup, man, that was that was unbelievable, and it was made extra special because I was there with the love of my life, my my wife Jess, and um, I was sitting there alongside her on one side, Lee Ellis from the starters on the other, and um, I just it just it just happened like we we got ahead, and Patty kept us ahead, and that golden group of boomers um, just did what we all kind of thought they might one day do and hoped we they would do. And, you know, they haven't looked back from there, right? Like they beat the Team USA in Las Vegas in the warm-up game, won the bronze medal and onwards and upwards from there. But I feel like that game was just just like the ultimate kind of basketball experience for me, watching our national team beat Team USA. Absolutely. And you know what, thinking back to that sort of that game that we played to get into the potential gold medal game as well. Now we played them tough. We did for a long time. Really yeah, tough. yeah, we did. I think we dared to dream Dude. for a, a good uh, good chunk of that oh, game. Oh man, we're up 15 in the second yeah. quarter. Yeah. <laughs> yep. That's the one that got away. Yeah, it really was, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, KD and Drew Holiday uh, put the claps on and started, yeah. Great game though. For yeah. Pharrell, that's, that's... Doesn't we, we've had some heartbreak over the years, right? The boomers, like oh, Amir Spain game. from Turkey, oh, golly. yes, game and France and <laughs> Lithuania and, uh, making us fourth every year, it seems, for a while. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's watching that game slip away and KD kind of fire up was was similarly tough, I, I suppose. So, Liam, what we would obviously, you know, be remiss of having you on here and not asking you, you know, any sort of plugs that you maybe want to give for what you're working on right now. Uh, I'm good, guys. I mean, stay tuned for more Next Stars announcements, Ooh. I guess. Um, you know, we're, uh, we, you know, we're, we're moving and shaking in that regard. And as I said, you know, like, um, the, the interest from all the teams here has been high the interest from players around the world is continues to be high and, um, just kind of working on that on a daily basis right now. Um, we'll be heading over to the summer league, uh, and, uh, we'll be a part again of the kind of coverage of our guys and all the moving and shaking going on over there. So stay tuned for that in, in uh, early mid July. And then, uh, yeah, get yourself ready for another big NBL season, NBL overtime and the huddle will ramp back up soon. And, um, you know, we'll get stuck back into the broadcast of, 
of another big NBL season um, before too long. Well, we're glad that you're still going to be commentating and being in the media, even though you have this new role as general manager of Nexstar. So, so that's really great. We can't wait for the next season. Thank you so much again, Liam. You've been super generous with your time. We barely scratched the surface. We had a bunch of other things, but you've just been brilliant. Great answers, and we cannot thank you enough, can we, Stewie? Absolutely, mate. Really appreciate you making the time. Awesome, fellas. Keep up, keep up the great work, and um, and thanks heaps for the chat. I enjoyed it. Stewie, you know what that music means. Final thoughts time. I mean, it's like a broken record. We talk to so many of these amazing people around our league and just get these phenomenal experiences talking about everything from A to Z. And look, Liam, absolutely no exception to the rule there. Oh, just better than our wildest dreams, wasn't it? Absolutely. Just fantastic. And a lot of juicy goss. And glad we did our research as well to ask some, some good questions and just some fantastic responses from the man. But we really appreciate the, the generosity of the time. It's obviously just there's so much going on in his life. Great stuff. Thank you so much again, Liam. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes.